He's going to lock the door so that Satan is bound there for a thousand years. Now, this bottomless pit, we've already looked at it several times in Revelation, I think chapter 9, 11, maybe 14, I can't remember. But again, it's mentioned here in chapter 20. And it's not the same place as hell. The bottomless pit is not the same place as hell. It is a place where right now the worst demons are presently incorporated, a place so horrific that in Matthew 8, when Jesus uh, confronted the two men who were so filled with demons that they were called legion, a legion in Roman terms was 6,000 men. So maybe this guy had 6,000 demons in him, we don't know. But so many that they pleaded with the Lord, please don't send us to the bottomless pit. Let us go off into the herd of swine. We'd rather do that than go there. So I don't know what kind of place this is, but obviously it's not a place that demons want to go to, although the worst demons are right now uh, bound in that place. The Greek word is literally abyssos, or sometimes called uh, abuso. And it means literally without depth. Without depth. That's why it's translated bottomless pit. The Greek is abuso or abus, uh, abasos, which means without depth. As I've said before, I think in chapter 9 when we studied it there, the only place in the earth where there could be a bottomless pit is right in the very center. Because in the center of the earth, every direction is up. Now in chapter 9, we learn that there is a shaft that leads from this bottomless pit to the surface of the earth. Remember how that at one point an angel opened it and these demonic locust creatures came out and had power to sting unbelievers on the earth for five months and torment them? So we know it's someplace in the earth. We know that. And because of the name, I'm assuming it's right in the center of the earth, a bottomless pit. Now, Satan is going to be bound there for a thousand years. You can't have a millennial kingdom, a paradise on earth, if Satan's running around messing with it deceiving people. So God locks him up, okay, and uh, doesn't quite throw away the key, although we wish he would. Uh, but it says here that after these things, or in other words, after the thousand years is finished, uh, the devil is, has to be released for a little while. The question is, why in the world does God release Satan after the thousand years are over? For the same reason God loosed him in the very beginning. He is serving the purposes of God. We're, we're going to see that clearly next time. All right, as we finish the chapter. But Satan is fulfilling God's purpose. That, that is the only reason God allows him to continue. People think, well, you know, God and Satan are equals that are pitted against each other in battle. That, that is absolutely untrue. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God is the creator. Satan or Lucifer was the creation. I mean, if he's got a counterpart, it might be Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel but certainly not the Lord himself. But God allows him to continue because he is serving the purposes of God. Uh, I'll be put to you this way. You can't have free will if there's only one choice. That's not really choice, is it? You can't have free elections, but there's only one candidate, like some of the communist countries, you know, who all call themselves the republic of this or that. They're not a republic, they're a dictatorship. And the idea is that they, they present this facade of, of democracy and, and free choice, but they don't really, it's not really genuine. We know that. Well, the same is true in the spirit realm. God has given us a free will, and by necessity, he has to give us 
a choice. Satan becomes that choice. Not that everybody who, who um, rejects Jesus becomes a Satan worshiper. But as Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're what? You're against me. I mean, I don't care if you're a, you're a total atheist, agnostic, uh, secularist. But it doesn't matter if you're not for Jesus Christ and for God, then you are against him. And whether you know it or not, you are serving the purposes of Satan. So Satan is not cast into hell immediately because God still has one more task for him to perform. And so he temporarily imprisons him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. We also learn from Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 23, that at that time, uh, his demonic hordes are also in prison with him. So it's not like just the devil gets cast into prison for a thousand years and his demons are able to run around the earth doing dirty work. They're all cast, probably all of them into the bottomless pit for the thousand years. Well, verse 4, John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in, on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. John said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Who are on these thrones? Well, I think there's three groups. First of all, turn to Daniel 7. The first group are Old Testament saints. In Daniel chapter 7, I'll give you three verses in chapter 7. We'll look at verses 18, 22, and 27. I'm just going to read them all together. But it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Now these saints will be the Old Testament saints. And possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So this is telling us that when Jesus Christ comes back, the Messiah, that the Old Testament saints are going to be sitting on thrones ruling with Him. That's the first group. The second group would be the church saints, all of us. Matthew 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, speaking to the twelve, to his apostles, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you, sh you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus initially had twelve apostles. Of course, Judas blew it. And I, I don't believe he was replaced by Matthias. I believe it was Paul who becomes the 12th apostle. Even as Paul said, you know, that he was one born out of due time. Uh, and he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, right? Probably a little, you know, reference to the fact that they quickly cast lots to choose a replacement for Judas. Matthias, who was probably a great guy, you just never hear of him anymore, after the lot fell on him and he was numbered with the 12. So I, I think that my personal opinion is Paul becomes the 12th apostle. And the, the apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom, judging. But not just them. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, 
Paul said to the Corinthians, do you not know that the saints, now he's talking about New Testament saints, church saints, will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? I mean, what's this fighting, bickering? You're taking matters to to secular courts and judges. Don't you know we're going to judge the world someday? Can't you solve these disputes among yourselves? Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? No doubt fallen angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? So we also are going to judge sitting on thrones in the kingdom age and judging. Jesus makes this even more clear in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 7, where it says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. So Jesus talks about all those who are his someday, if we're faithful in this life to what he has said, we are going to rule with him. And then in Revelation 3, verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And there's other scriptures we can look at that talk about the fact that Christians in the church age someday are going to rule with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. But there's a third group that will also be joining us on these thrones, and they are the tribulation saints. And Paul or excuse me, John talks about them right here in Revelation 20, verse 4. Again, he said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Uh, right there he's talking about the Old Testament and New Testament saints. But then he adds, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. He goes on to finish, and they, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They meaning all they. You have Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and tribulation saints are all going to be ruling in the millennial kingdom. And you say, well, who are they going to be ruling or reigning over? Well, Jesus is going to be the king of kings in the millennial kingdom. He is going to rule over all of us. But then, if we've been faithful... Uh, in whatever he's called us to do in this life, uh, as Jesus said, you know, come, you've been faithful, I will make you ruler over ten cities or five cities. Remember the parable that he told for those that were faithful. There we're going to be giving, be given places of authority in the kingdom age. And so, uh, but Jesus, of course, will be over all. And we will be reigning over the people on the earth. Don't forget now, as we said last time, when the kingdom age first begins, think about this. There won't be any unbelievers on the face of the earth. When he returns, he is going to take every unbeliever on the face of the planet and cast them into Hades. So you have a situation that right in the beginning of the kingdom age, there is not a single unbeliever on the face of the earth. Isn't that a trip? But a lot of people who are alive on the earth when he comes will be Christians, okay, believers, they will have escaped the Antichrist, and they will have hidden out and are going to make it. Because they are true believers, they'll be allowed to enter the millennial kingdom. They'll, of course, marry if they're not already married to somebody that made it also. They'll have kids. Uh, their kids will grow up and have kids, and then that, that generation will grow up and have kids. Don't forget now, longevity is going to be restored as it was before the flood. So you're going to have a lot of people that are probably going to live the whole thousand years 
uh, sickness will be almost non-existent. You're going to have ideal living conditions, plenty of food, the whole earth transformed into like a tropical paradise all over the entire planet. So you're going to have all kinds of places for people to live. And just it's going to be a population explosion. Possibly by the end of the thousand years, we're going to see four to five billion people on the earth. Many of them have been born now, you know, year 500 or 600. Uh, you know, this life, they will know nothing of. Just stories that their parents have told them. And they're going to grow up in a pretty ideal situation. Paradise, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, there's going to be no more wars during this time. There's going to be no injustice or evil or crime. The Lord will not permit it. In fact, those of us who are ruling with him, we will be authorized by him not to permit it either. And anyone who really steps out of line and, and I don't know, commits some kind of a crime, I would imagine has to be somewhat serious, uh, they're going to get popped with the rod of iron and removed from the earth. He's not going to allow any kind of injustice or crime. So it's going to be a pretty ideal situation, and we're going to reign over this population. Now, it's not going to have a happy ending for a lot of people, as we're going to see next time. Because when Satan is released, he's able to tempt a lot of people to follow him in a rebellion. And, and you know, that really answers some questions that I'm going to say for next time. So we will reign over a very large population. Verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now don't let that last phrase throw you. The, the statement, this is the first resurrection, is a term that actually relates back to verse 4. Let me show you how it goes. At the end of verse 4 we read, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who? Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, right? They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. End of verse 5. It really goes to verse 4. This is the first resurrection. All the saints resurrected and living with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. You had to kind of invert the two parts of verse 5, because that last part, this is the first resurrection, actually is talking about verse 4. And then you have verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now, the Jews believed in one great resurrection, just one, just like a lot of Christians today believe. There's a lot of Christians who believe there's only one resurrection. This idea that there are different resurrections, that's not true. There's one great resurrection where believers and unbelievers are all raised together. But folks, it says this is the first resurrection. If you have a first resurrection, you have to have at least one more, right? I mean, you, you know, there's, it's no point in saying, you know, of the only resurrection that this is the first resurrection. If there is a first, there has to, of necessity, be a second, or maybe a third and fourth, but there has to at least be one more for this to be the first, right? I don't think we have to have a degree in theology to figure that out. You know, Jesus taught in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 28 and 9, that there would be two great resurrections. One he called the resurrection of life, that's for believers, 
and the other he called the resurrection of condemnation, which pertains to unbelievers. And right here in Revelation 20, verse 5, we learn that they are separated by at least a thousand years. They are separated by at least a thousand years. In fact, Paul the Apostle went on to explain that the first of these great resurrections is really not an event in time, but a category that contains multiple resurrections of believers. What am I talking about? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. See, the first resurrection is not an event. It's a category. And there are several resurrections of believers that fall under this category of the first resurrection. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll just read verses 20 through 23, where Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, a term always used of believers. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive." But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Now this is important, especially to our subject tonight. The word for order there in verse 23, but each one, in other words, each group will be resurrected in his own order. The Greek word there is tagma, and it means a series of succession. A series of succession. Paul is telling us, that the physical resurrection of believers doesn't happen all at once, but consists in a series of successive resurrections, starting with Jesus, who is called the first fruits. Now see, to understand what Paul is saying, he's going back and he's taking something from the seven feasts of Moses, which were recorded in Leviticus 23. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God, right, who came down to die for our sins. He was crucified on Passover just because He is the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, whose blood, when applied to our lives by faith, causes the judgment of God to pass over us, right? He was crucified on Passover, and He rose three days later on Sunday, which was the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Firstfruits was a Jewish agricultural feast. And what happened was, and it took place always the first Sunday after Passover. And what it was, was you would, uh, uh, at this time in the spring, the first sheaves of the barley harvest, which was a winter crop, was already poking its way up out of the ground. So they would, on the Feast of First Roots, cut down some of these first sheaves of the barley harvest, take it down to the temple, give it to the priest to wave before the Lord as a wave offering. The idea was this. God always got the first. That was the tithe. That's what the tithe was. The tithe was giving God the first. It, it represented the fact that God always has to be first in our lives. We always must put God first. First of our with our time, our money, you know, our energies. Our, he's got to be our first love, that kind of thing, right? God has always got to be first. When we make God first in our lives, He blesses everything else. And that was the idea with the Feast of First Fruits. I was taking what God had given me, the first fruits which belonged to Him, cut them down, take them to the temple, offer them to God. They belong to Him. God's first. 
And as they would offer the first fruits of the barley harvest to the Lord, God would receive it and he would guarantee that he would honor that and give to them an abundant harvest when the full barley crop had matured. Well, Jesus Christ died in Passover and he rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was God's way of saying to us that those who are followers of Jesus would also be raised one day as part of a much larger future harvest, not of grain, but of souls, right? Now, when we say that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead of those who have fallen asleep, we're not saying he was the first person ever to be resurrected from the dead. In the Old Testament, we have several situations where, we, where people were raised from the dead, right? In the New Testament, we have recorded three, there might have been others, that Jesus raised from the dead. There was the widow of Nain's son. There was Jairus' daughter. And of course, the one that we all know is Lazarus, right? There might have been others. But those were the three recorded in the Gospels. But see, they were all resurrected to die again. But Jesus rose and to never die again. He rose with a glorified body. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. day, by day.